Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. We've got a new co-host today. Uh, this is Tracy, who is a friend of mine. Actually, we've been friends since high school. And interesting story. She was actually the one I originally started this podcast with. And it was just hard to find time that she could do it. And so just by chance, Cameo asked me to do a podcast with her too. And so we ended up starting with Cameo. But I've been trying to get Tracy on the show for forever. Tracy, say hello. Hello. Um, I'm just a you know basic working person who's interested in all sorts of topics. I guess I'd classify, my, uh, classify myself as somewhat of a nerd. So I um, like to read books such as David Deutsch's books, Fabric of Reality, and um, anything that's interesting about the world and reality and, and science and learning, sign me up. I'm, I'm all about learning about it. Um, and that's yeah. certainly true. You ask a lot of really good questions. <laughs> I've noticed. I appreciate that. <laughs> and then we have our, our guest today, um, Sam Kuypers. Did I say that right, Sam? Yes. He and David Deutsch recently did a, pa- a paper called Everettian Relative States in the Heisenberg Picture. But uh, so Sam and David Deutsch did this paper and I had noticed it. And that was why I asked him on the show was to ask him questions about his paper and get him to kind of describe it. Uh, it. It is a bit of a rough go mathematically, but Sam and I have been working on also some YouTube videos that describe the mathematics for someone who's you know, an interested uh, layman who's willing to put a little bit of effort in to understand the mathematics. And by the time you hear this episode, those should be up on edited and up on YouTube. Or the first one, anyhow, we may do some additional ones. He and it's the first one was about uh, explaining Q numbers, which is a big part of this paper. So, Sam, can you uh, introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit, a little bit, a bit about yourself. Um, yeah, so I am a DPhil student at Oxford, where I research the foundations of quantum theory, and that usually means, uh, well, in my case, it means I'm interested in the many worlds interpretation of quantum theory. And, that, and that's the topic of the paper. So the paper is about a kind of reformulating Everett's uh, relative state construction, which, which is the foundations of the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum theory. Yes. So Sam, I've got lots of questions about this, but I, I think my first question for you, though, is how many people actually accept many worlds interpretation of quantum physics? As someone who's in the field and really doing this uh, in real life, how much of a minority are you? I'm not clear on how big of a minority we are at the moment. I remember reading a blog post by Sean Carroll in which, if I remember correctly, it's roughly uh, 30% of the physics community who are studying these topics, are studying kind of foundations of quantum theory, believe that uh, the many worlds interpretation is the, the way to go. Uh, of course, in Oxford, there, there's kind of the gang of uh, Everettians reside here. So there's, 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 usually if you uh, read, if you read, for example, the book by Peter Byrne about uh, Everett's life, then there's a, there's a section on the, the Oxfordian uh, Everettians. And, uh, and so here it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> yes. That, that's something. In fact, you've got a conference coming up that you guys are doing, right? The, that... Is it Oxford that's putting that on, or is it just a, a conference in general, the virtual conference? That is just a virtual conference that I'm putting up with a friend of mine, a friend and colleague, 
uh, Charles uh, Bedard. Yeah, it, it isn't really connected to the university in any direct way other than that I'm a DPhil student here and I, I wanted to organize a conference. And, and, and luckily, uh, doing that online means that there's there's not a lot of administrative work. So right. you, you're very free in just inviting people and having, having them speak. And yeah, so it, it's, it's something that we didn't organize uh, with the university specifically. But you've got like a lot of really big names coming to the conference. Uh, from what I could see. So I actually think people should check it out. What is the name of the conference? Uh, the name of the conference is on, on the shoulders of Everett. And yeah, the, we, we have a, a bunch of really interesting speakers. We have Chiara Maletto, David Wallace. We have uh, Carlo Rivelli. Yeah, Fl Flacco Vedral, my supervisor, will also be speaking. And I think it will be uh, Zurich is another one, is another speaker that I am very much looking forward to uh, hearing present at the, the conference. Yeah, we have, we have a nice list of people attending. So uh, it should be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So you just mentioned that like 30% or so of those looking into the foundations of quantum physics accept many worlds at this point. But I'll bet you if we went back a decade or two, even just maybe even just a decade, it would be nowhere near that large. Would I be right or am I misinformed here? I'm not actually sure. So I think that the poll that uh, Carol writes about in, on the blog is quite old. Okay. Uh, but I could also be misremembering the, the statistics here. I, I think it is still something like that. I imagine, well, so it's very strange because I think many students are becoming ever more interested in the yeah. topic, but that doesn't necessarily translate to there being uh, more people in high positions in universities who actually research it. And I, th I think there's a distinction, but I'm hopeful that it's a growing community of people. I guess, I guess the reason I don't have the statistic in mind is because I, I tend to just be convinced that it is the right way of doing things. And if, if it's the right way of doing things, then if you make the best case for it that you can, you'll hopefully convince others and it will, will increase in popularity over time. Yes. Uh, and, and also it's the, it's, it's the thing worth working on if it's true. Give us a little bit of history about many worlds. How did how did that interpretation come about and like, where, where did it come from and what was the, why was it necessary? So it, it came from Everett's thesis under the supervision of Wheeler. The, the main problem that Everett tried to address was uh, this idea that there's two ways in which quantum systems appear to evolve. One of them is the way systems evolve in general, um, which is kind of, if it's not being observed, then, there's a set of rules, it's like, for example, the Schrodinger equation that determines how systems evolve over time. And whenever they're being measured, they, they apparently collapse, what, is, what they call collapse. And it's, it's a different kind of dynamical law that is used when systems are observed. And the two can't really be unified in any nice way. And, and the, the situations in which we apply the, the collapse rule are rather parochial. They're, they're when, for example, a, some, some kind of what, what you think of as a classical measure or a person or someone who's conscious or something measures a system. And, and that brings into fundamental physics all kinds of things that I don't think belong in fundamental physics in the way that uh, they're being presented as. So for example, I don't think that consciousness is part of quantum theory. Uh, that, that is a separate interesting topic that should be treated differently and it's 
very unsatisfactory to have as a rule in quantum theory that something evolves differently when it's being consciously observed. So that's that's kind of one criticism of the, the collapse postulate. So when, now, I, when I looked into yeah, quantum physics, I was immediately struck by the fact that there, there were many things that counted as an observation that caused this collapse. And it didn't require anything like consciousness. It could be a detector. It could be a photo plate. Um, so it's interesting that, I mean, I, I agree with you when you bring this up, but even, even just with the collapse function, even with the way they were teaching quantum physics, it's not immediately obvious at all that you have to insert consciousness. That seems almost forced that people started inserting it in. It, it, it wasn't part of even that interpretation. Yeah, well, um, that kind of brings us to a paradox known as Wigner's strength, uh, in which you have two observers and one of the observers is isolated in a room and, and, they, and their task is to uh, look at a quantum system and to note down what kinds of measurement outcomes they uh, detected. And there's a second person who is usually known as Bob and the first person is usually known as Alice, who is outside of the room that Alice finds herself in. And the, the room is completely isolated and, and no one knows what's going on inside the room except for Alice. And the, the strange thing is that if uh, you apply the rules uh, according to how they're prescribed, then you would say, okay, well, Alice is performing a measurement and therefore something collapses. But there is a, there's a larger system, which is, consists of Alice and the measurement device that uh, you know, are contained in this room. And, and they're isolated and therefore they evolve according to the Schrodinger equation. And there's this person outside of the room called Bob he he uh, he concludes. Well, as long as I haven't measured this this room that contains Alice, she doesn't actually have anything like objective existence because right. she's in a superposition. Right. And, um, and I think you could say the same thing of a measurement device. You could say, well, there's a measurement device in the room. Uh, forget Alice. It's, this is just a measurement device. It has recorded something, but it, it doesn't actually mean anything for it to have recorded anything until we see it. Because then we that's when we apply the the sure. collapse postulate. Sure. So. Uh, that, that kind of, uh, I think people were forced to um, start talking about consciousness because of this nonsensical rule. Well, it's not completely nonsensical. It's, it's, I think it's too harsh to, to say it's entirely nonsensical because systems do appear to collapse, but the, the logic of it is uh, unclear. Like there's no explanation for why the collapse happens. So this is the measurement problem. Yes, yes. So the right. idea that Alice has made a measurement and from a certain point of view, you could say the system has now collapsed, the wave function has now collapsed. And from another point of view, you could say, well, she's now caught up in the, the wave function. And so for Bob, she doesn't, she is in a superposition herself at this point. Yeah, so in the usual interpretation, you would say something like, well, she doesn't have objective existence or something. Just like a particle in a superposition doesn't have or isn't assigned anything like objective uh, existence until it's measured, you could you could then say the same thing about Alice, and, and then all kinds of interesting questions come up from that. Like, well, is if uh, we are in a in a uh, a kind of a larger room 
in the sense of if we are part of the larger system that's not yet being observed by some other observer, Charlie, then how, do, how are we to know that our existence is objective? Right. I, I think this is actually one of the, the kind of questions that Everett asked in his thesis, where he raised the possibility that, you know, Ellis, of course, has a history before Bob measures uh, the room that she's in. And she, for her, nothing changes when, when Bob walks into the room. And, and when Bob starts talking about how he, he gave her objective existence because he measured her in the room, he can then uh, be countered with the argument that, well, you know, from her point of view, nothing changed. How, how about if they're still in a kind of a larger room that is yet to be measured by, Char by some other observer, Charlie? How, right. how are they to know that they already have objective ex existence or not? And yes. so that gets all of that gets you into trouble very quickly. <laughs> yeah, for that matter, why are we going in one direction? I mean, couldn't Alice also claim that Bob had no objective existence until he walked yes. in the room? Yeah, very true. The other thing that I found interesting when I was studying this years ago was the EPR paradox. If, if I recall, I, I, I don't remember much. I, I remember working it out once on paper so that I made sure I understood it, but then it like started slipping out of my mind almost immediately. But it was a paper that Einstein wrote um, with two other people, the P and the R. He was trying to demonstrate that there was a problem with quantum physics because it violated non-locality um, of his theory of general relativity. Is that correct? Do I understand that correctly? Uh, yes, yeah, so it violated uh, locality. Locality, so sorry. Yes. So Einstein has what is known as Einstein's criterion of locality, which, which states that whenever uh, you have two subsystems that are spatially separated from one another, like for example, if, um, if, if you have the Earth and the Sun, spatially separated in the sense that there, you know, there's some distance between them, and you, you do something on Earth, then uh, that operation that you perform on Earth, um, that, that has no immediate effect on the sun. It, it's only when people, when, when uh, objects come into contact with one another that they can exert some kind of effect on one another. So operations that you perform on Earth don't necessarily affect distant stars, the sun, other systems, etc. Maybe an even nicer example is that, you know, if the, uh, the light from the sun has to travel to the Earth, and before it arrives uh, on the Earth, it's, it can't have any physical effect on us. That's part of the kind of theory of relativity that the speed of light is the speed limit of the universe. And that means that uh, before light reaches the Earth, the, the, the sun cannot have any effect on us. And that, that is another way of viewing locality that systems need to be in, uh, in contact with one another before they can physically affect one another. Yeah. So Einstein's purpose then for coming up with the EPR paradox was to show that quantum physics must be wrong because if it were right, then there would be this non-local aspect to it. That was his yes. point, right? The problem was that the experiment he laid out actually works in real life. They're thereby leading to this idea that quantum physics is non-local. And how many to what degree do physicists currently accept the, accept the idea that quantum physics is non-local? 
Uh, it's, it's that's a very controversial topic. Most people, most physicists think that quantum theory is non-local. In other words, most physicists think that if you have uh, quantum systems, then they can exert effect, then they you know, can affect one another, even when they're spatially separated. So if you have uh, a quantum system on uh, on the Earth and one on the Sun, then they can then they can affect each other faster than the speed of light in some sense. And this is why Einstein thought of that uh, thought experiment because he was convinced that that is not how uh, physics is supposed to, or how physical systems are supposed to behave. And it seems from the usual way of formulating quantum theory that that is in fact what's going on, that, that these systems have effects on one another, even though they aren't supposed to, even though they're very far apart and should not in any way be able to uh, change each other's behavior. So in your paper, you mentioned that Everett formulated his picture of quantum physics in the Schrodinger picture instead of the Heisenberg picture. And that's like yes. kind of the main reason why you're writing this paper is because you're saying that the Schrodinger picture is non-local and therefore it seems like if, if we are taking those equations seriously, then we would have to say that quantum physics is, is non-local. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. In the, so everything I just said about quantum systems affecting one another, even when they're not at the same location, it appears to be true in the Schrodinger picture. And the reason for this is that if, whenever you have multiple systems that you describe in the Schrodinger picture, so whenever you have, say, um, perhaps you have two, three, or more particles that you're describing in the Schrodinger picture. The, the way that you describe those particles depends on how you describe the other particles. So there's no way of describing the particles individually, separate from the other particles present in the system, in the composite system. And this seems to suggest that there is no such thing as the individual particle. This kind of weighs around this, what's known as uh, the density matrix formalism in which you can talk about the state of an individual particle, but that formalism is incomplete. So in the Schrodinger picture, if you have, if someone gives you what's known as the state vector, then in some sense, you know everything about the system. You know all of the possible expectation values of every, every possible measurement on the system. And, and if you use this different formalism, the so-called density matrix formalism, then although you are able to describe subsystems independently of the other systems. So you're able to describe, say, a single particle in this multi-particle composite system. Um, the density matrix formalism isn't complete. So you're not able to actually compute all of the possible expectation values. You lose some information by going to this local description. And consequently, uh, people have concluded that quantum theory really isn't local, that it isn't really meaningful to describe subsystems individually because they they always uh, have effects on one another when they are uh, part of a larger system. And you mentioned in your paper that even some really big name physicists, even ones that believe in many worlds, see it as non-local, like Weidmann you mentioned. Yes. Yeah, uh, Weidmann has a very nice entry on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy in which he writes about this. And he explicitly states that his, his notion of a world of the universe is 
uh, non-local. In other words, so in, in kind of our terminology, we would say that the uh, the universe is all of of classical mechanics, so it's all is is kind of the classical world that we see around us, and it is but one of many such universes which exist in in the multiverse. So the multiverse is a larger object than just the universe. And in Vinton's terminology, he uh, he says that the universe is a, a non-local thing. That whenever a split happens, it's really the entire universe that splits all at once. Which, and which follows from so, the Schrodinger picture, correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. So if you're working in the Schrodinger picture, then that I think that's uh, indeed what's going on. Because again, there's not really a way of describing systems separately from one another. So uh, whenever one system splits, this has to also have an effect on the other systems in the Schrodinger picture, because because there is no way of describing them separately. So let's take just a moment to kind of explain what we mean by non-local. Um, the kind of the standard experiment would be like you've got a particle that's in a spin up and a spin down superposition or two um, and it splits into two particles which are now in a superposition. Do I have this correct? And then you like separate them, take one light years away and leave one on earth as long as they don't become entangled with their environment they should still be entangled with each other? Yes. But yeah, so it's a, it's a, what's known as a Bell state where you have, well, I th I th well Einstein and uh, Rosen-Podolsky, they, they didn't actually know about Bell states, but the way in which typically it's formulated today is basically the way that you formulate it now. Namely, you, you have these uh, small quantum systems, namely qubits, that are entangled with one another and uh, they're entangled in such a way that if you, for example, measure up on one of the qubits, then the other qubits will also be in an up state. And if you measure down on one of the qubits, then the, the that other qubit will also be in a down state. For example, that's, that's one of the possible ways. In which Doesn't, they don't they entangled. have to be reversed? I thought like one had to be up and one had to be down because of the... Um, I think it's, I think it's bo both are fine. It just depends. Uh, all that matters is that they are, are uh, entangled in the sense that the, the joint measurement uh, gives you some certainty. So if you if you know that one of them is up, then you know with, uh, with with certainty what the other qubit will be when you measure it. And, and, and it doesn't matter if it's sorry. Go ahead. Well, that's why it seems non-local. Then, right? Is because yes. we just we just measured this one particle, and light years away, we now know something about the other particle that wasn't known prior to that point. Yes, and part of the reason why that isn't exactly true is, for example, that you can still perform operations on that other particle and you you know a conditional truth which is that if for example so you take the state in which uh the particle both particles in superposition in such a way that if you measure one particle uh in the up state then the other one's also in the up state and if you measure one particle in the down state then the other one's also in the down state and now you you separate those two states you again keep one on earth go and and bring the other one to another galaxy for for uh, purposes of this thought experiment, and you perform a measurement on the qubit here on Earth, then you immediately know, you think you immediately know what's going on with the qubit in, in the other galaxy. But that's not exactly true, because you know that only if nothing happened to that qubit, right. uh, you're able to determine its state. But it could be that it rotated, or that something happened to it that you can't know about, because physical systems actually adhere to the Einstein's criterion. So in other words, 
maybe some observer decided to perform an operation on its qubit and you won't know about that operation because it, 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 as it turns out, it has no physical effect on you. Right. If you're space like separated. Yeah. So it, I, I, that makes, that's a very good example. I've never actually heard it explained that well before. Um, the reason why I guess they see it as non-local is because at least in the idealized circumstance, you had two particles in superposition of up and down and one of them resolves and in their minds, they're thinking that resolved the other one too. Yes. No, it was light years away. It was in superposition. Now it's not in superposition because you resolved one light years away. Um, yeah. And that's all because of the Schrodinger picture. I think that in, so in physical reality, the, the particles cannot exert any effect on one another when they're not uh, near to one another unless something propagates in between but we're, we're considering the case in which that nothing is propagating in between them that's that's kind of what makes it so uh, bizarre is that without anything physically propagating from one particle to the other they still seem to have some effect on one another and the resolution is basically to say well that, that's all just an attribute of the Schrodinger picture and there's other ways of describing quantum theory yeah, so in, in particular, there is the Heisenberg picture and it has all of the properties of locality that we could desire from a physical theory. In other words, whereas in the Schrodinger picture, there is no way of describing subsystems independently of other systems. So there's no way of describing the uh, two qubit system as the wave function of two separate qubits. You always, you always have to consider the wave function of the combined system for it to give you full information about the state that the system is in. In the Heisenberg picture, you can have a complete description in which it's perfectly possible to talk about subsystems which evolve locally in the sense that if you do something to the one particle, it doesn't have any effect on the description of the other particle. And it's also a complete description in the sense that anything you could possibly want to compute is computable in the Heisenberg picture. So you have complete information about the state. So it can compute the same things as the, as the Schrodinger picture, but it yes. does so in a way that makes, that is transparent about what, where the locality is. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the, and, and this is um, a discovery made by Deutsch and Hayden. And the way that they kind of summarize it is by saying, well, in a sense, the, the Schrodinger picture is like a highly condensed way of formulating quantum theory. It's like having a compressed file on your computer. And you can kind of see that you're losing out on information because of the compression. And this, this as a result that sometimes you can't describe systems as being independent from one another. For example, when they're entangled, you, you cannot write down their uh, state as the state of two independent wave functions, but they have to be somehow the, the state of the combined wave function of both particles or both systems. But that's that's a an artifact of the Schrodinger picture being a very condensed description. And the Heisenberg picture does not have this feature. So is this the motivation for your paper then is to make this clear? Are there other motivations um, for why you are writing this paper and you're trying to do this in the Heisenberg picture? Well, I think this is the main one. I mean, the the way that I kind of view this is that the Heisenberg picture is the more fundamental description of quantum theory. That the Heisenberg picture has 
the property of locality because it is superior in in some sense like there it should be stressed that both the heisenberg picture and the schrodinger picture are mathematically equivalent but they're nonetheless very different descriptions and i suspect that the heisenberg picture is uh, the fundamental description of quantum theory uh, maybe i mean uh, these are all unknown but perhaps uh, the heisenberg picture perhaps in a future theory of quantum mechanics or a successive theory rather there will be no Schrodinger picture. Uh, so Dirac actually wrote a nice paper about this, kind of arguing that, well, maybe there's uh, field theories which allow solutions in uh, the Heisenberg picture, but which don't have solutions in the Schrodinger picture. So maybe there's an asymmetry between the two. Yeah. And that's all kind of a motivation for thinking that, well, maybe the Heisenberg picture is just the way to go in general, and we should leave behind the Schrodinger picture as just a, a useful tool for calculations. Because of that, and because of the fact that uh, before the, the paper, there wasn't really a good work on how to formulate Everett's construction in the, Schrodinger, in the Heisenberg picture, sorry, in the Heisenberg picture. There, it, it seems useful to us to, to provide that, to give a description of, of Everett's construction, which I think is the solution to the measurement problem in the Heisenberg picture, which is the, the solution to, to the problem of locality, in a sense. I, I, I guess it's not usually called that, but um, I guess we could call it that for, for the podcast, the, the problem of locality that Einstein noticed in his EPR paper. Okay. Why did, two questions here. Why did Everett choose to formulate this in the Schrodinger picture instead of the Heisenberg picture? And is there any advantages to the Schrodinger picture? Like, is it like easier to compute in some cases or something like that? Yes. Well, uh, the, the, the answer to the first question is rather simple. It's just that it's the most widely used uh, description of quantum theory. And the reason for that is uh, that the Schrodinger picture is just, as you put it, easier to compute with. Yeah, so the Heisenberg picture isn't the uh, picture that people traditionally use. It's, a, it's, it's invented around the same time as Schrodinger, but I think that researchers very quickly adapted the Schrodinger picture because it's just so much easier to calculate with. And also at that time, it wasn't known that there was this benefit with the Heisenberg picture because those issues with locality were still being kind of uncovered. I see. And uh, I think, well, it's only been since Deutsch and Hayden, which is in uh, the late nineties, that we have discovered the, these attributes of the Heisenberg picture that I think make it preferable over the Schrodinger picture. So as you have Everett come up with many worlds to try to explain uh, the measurement problem, it's my understanding that initially he was largely just dismissed as crackpot science uh, with, with the exception of his advisor. Um, who was his advisor again? Uh, so his advisor, his supervisor was Wheeler. Wheeler. And right. Wheeler had a very strange reaction to Everett's thesis. I think initially he was rather optimistic about it and he felt like Everett's solution to the measurement problem could be used to gain a deeper insight into quantum gravity because there could be such a thing as say the, the wave function for the universe. But because Wheeler was educated by Bohr, I think in turn that uh, Wheeler, Wheeler supervisor was Bohr, whom he greatly admired, and Bohr was very 
unfavorable he he to the many worlds interpretation and consequently i think that uh wheeler changed his mind and was of the opinion that the many worlds interpretation was the wrong way of viewing quantum theory there's a nice interview with with wheeler on youtube in which he summarizes everett's interpretation as you couldn't get quantum theory more wrong so that was his opinion about the theory for most of his life i think after it had been presented to Bohr, and it went to the extent where wheeler really found it necessary to edit to severely edit everett's thesis so they sat together over the course of several evenings after everett had presented his work to other researchers and they edited out many of the the words and much of the core of the theory that everett presented in his what's now known as his longer thesis which is available online for free and that kind of shows that he, he was a bit hostile towards the whole uh, idea of many worlds yeah um is there a connection between wheeler and david deutsch uh yeah so wheeler also supervised david david deutsch yes there's, there's an interesting history where, where deutsch was uh, supervised by Wheeler at the time when uh, Everett's work was kind of being rediscovered by other researchers like Bryce the Wit. There's, there's actually a nice documentary in which they, they talk about this. I think it's called Parallel Lives, and it's about the son of Everett, who is now a famous rock star of, uh, of the Eels, band the Eels. And they they kind of follow him. They follow this the the son of Everett, while he he discovers about his dad's work and about the kind of notoriety that he has acquired in the physics community. And there's a nice segment where David talks about uh, meet, meeting Everett and the yeah how how that meeting came about. Because I think it was due to Bryce DeWitt and Wheeler having invited him back for a, or invited him back. Um, it's, they, they invited him for a, a conference and a series of talks on the topics of many worlds. Interesting. And David Deutsch, I, I guess I perceive him as being kind of the premier bearer of the Everett torch today. Um, yes. I know there's some other famous names like Max Tigmark, uh, who believes in many worlds also, but there's, there seems to be a bit of a difference. Max Tigmark is just interested in interesting, weird ideas, and he latches onto a lot of them, and he's very open-minded, which is good. I don't mean that in a negative way, where Deutsch seems to have come to it based on epistemology and the realization that this is the only actual explanation of quantum physics that's available to us, and then was compelled to believe it based on that. Is that correct? Oh, well, I don't know about how Techmark came to discover many worlds. I think he's pretty sound on the topic. And yeah, he, he, he seems sound enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure... I imagine that if you're interested in many worlds, you have to be a realist. You have to think that quantum theory really describes the physical world. It's a theory that isn't just 
a parochial description of very small things, but it applies to all physical systems in some sense. And the that, uh, that those are attributes of Everettians in general. I think those are the kinds of things that lead people to being an Everettian in general. So I imagine that Techmark is, is much, much the same, that he was interested in similar issues of uh, to just describing the real world. Yes. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, actually, yeah, uh, I'm not sure how he came to the theory. I, I've, I've read some of his books and I think you're correct that he buys into it quite strongly. Um, he, but he also has advanced other types of many worlds theories that are a lot more, um, there's no evidence for. And, and he'll tell you that. He's not like trying to hide that, but he's the one who came up with like the four different kinds of multiverses and things like that. Are you familiar with those? Right, yes. Uh, I'm only somewhat familiar with, with those ideas. It's like you have multiverses that are really bubbles in space, yeah. right? They're, yes. Type one and two, right. Yes. And yeah, I'm not too familiar with the topic. I'm, I'm, I basically just about know what the different universes are according to Techmark or what the different types of multiverses are. But um, yeah, other than that, I, I'm not very familiar. The, the ultimate multiverse in his mind, which is clearly not something there's any evidence for, would be that reality is mathematical. And so any mathematical system that's consistent exists. Um, so he, he has this kind of concept of a mathematical multiverse which clearly is very speculative, very different than the quantum multiverse where uh, it's a requirement to understand the explanation of um, quantum physics. He's, he's definitely more willing to dip into really speculative things. Right. Yes, uh, well, that's definitely different from Everett's construction. And I think it's solving a different problem. It sounds like that's trying to solve the issue of why does mathematics describe the real world yes. so well? Yeah, that's that's the problem he's trying to solve. Yes. He mentions that. Yeah, so that's a different issue. Yeah, uh, it's a related one in some sense because it's about why the universe is Turing complete, which has something to do with quantum computation. Or, well, I say the universe is Turing complete, but what I mean with that is a rather inexact statement. But what I mean is that the universe allows for uh, physical systems to be simulated with arbitrary accuracy on, with, with finite uh, means. So if you have a computer running on finite physical means, then it can, it can simulate any, any other physical system. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a related thing in the sense that there is we have a theory of, of computation, which is the quantum theory of computation. And that, that kind of gets you back to quantum theory. But the, the motivations for Techmark's multiverse seems to be very different in, in that Everett was solely concerned with an issue in quantum theory. Yeah. Um, so let's maybe let's describe what the, I mean, in layman's terms, without using math, and I know with quantum physics, it's really hard to describe things without the math. But um, let's describe what the Heisenberg picture looks like and what the multiverse looks like and what is a, what is a local version of the multiverse look like and what is the Heisenberg picture telling us about it? There's perhaps there's this thing that we should discuss before we get into this, which is entanglement, which oh, yes. we already mentioned. Yes. And it's, it's kind of at the heart of what 
quantum theory is about. So the uh, there's this property of quantum systems known as entanglement, where uh, as we we said, if you say have uh, two particles or two qubits, I think qubits are probably the easier example. If you have two qubits, then they each qubit individually can be in a superposition, meaning that they uh, they can have value say one or minus one, but uh, they can also be in in both of those states simultaneously. They can be in the state one and minus one simultaneously. Just to clarify, a qubit is a generalization of the concept of a bit, just like with a computer. So this would be a quantum bit. Um, yes. So it's it's a thing that has two definite states. It has uh, it 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 can be in a state one or minus one, or as it turns out, in the superposition of one and minus one. So this is something that always bothered me a bit about the way people describe quantum computation is they'll say and like the media just butchers science a lot I found, but they'll often say that you can do more with a quantum computer because you can have this bit as a one or as they usually use one and zero because of bits instead of one and negative one, but you, just a matter of how you're interpreting them. So it can be a one or a zero, or it can be both. And therefore it's more powerful. And the first time I ever read that, I thought that would be so easy to emulate on a classical computer. So that can't possibly be by itself, the full explanation. So entanglement's the real answer. Entanglement is more than that. Yeah, I think that's a nice point. It's because there, there's loads of superpositions that exist in nature. The superposition is this idea that you can have uh, that if you have a bunch of solutions for a set of equations, then uh, a, a sum of those solutions is also a solution. And, and perhaps the simplest case of that is just if you have light being in superposition, and you can imagine that you have uh, a ray of light pointing to uh, the west and a ray of light pointing to uh, the north. And those are separately allowed rays of light. And also if you add them together, so if, there's, if there are two light rays traveling north, and west or whatever directions I chose just now, then uh, those are also allowed. So you can have rays of light traveling in different directions at the same time. And that's because uh, light is a kind of a wave in the electromagnetic field and light rays, uh, each individual light ray is a solution to, to some, like Maxwell's equations and Maxwell's equations allow you to superpose rays of light. So rays of light traveling in different directions are allowed provided that each light ray individually is an allowed solution. And, and in the same way, a quantum theory says that, well, if, uh, what, if you have two solutions, then the sum of their solutions is also a solution to the Schrodinger equation. Um, I don't know if that clarified it. I think, I feel like I just dropped a whole lot of, of terminology <laughs> on you. Do, you uh, know, I think I can actually explain this. Um, in, in quantum computation, it's true that you have the bits in a superposition, but they also have a relationship to each other. And if you were to try to emulate that on a classical computer, that relationship that they have to each other, the amount of memory you need grows exponentially. And even after, like I started actually programming a quantum computation simulator on a computer, I couldn't even get to nine qubits before the amount of memory I needed to be able to track all the relationships that exist between each of the qubits was more than anything I was going to be able to afford. 
Um, and in fact, I, I doubt, I mean, like the reason why that you, you couldn't even get to like 30 qubits, you would have to use um, actual quantum computer to be able to get that far. I know some of the quantum computers that exist use like 30 qubits um, or equivalent to 30 qubits. That's probably well beyond like to try to emulate that on a computer. I would, I don't have the math worked out in my head, but I suspect it would require a computer the size of the universe or something to be able to uh, track 30 qubits. So it very quickly becomes completely intractable for a classical computer to be able to even just keep track of all the entanglements that are going on. And at least that was how I came to understand, oh, now I can see why a quantum computer would be more powerful than a classical computer is because it's actually capable of computing things um, that are, would be physically impossible for a classical computer without a universe sized computer. Yes, uh, that, that's definitely part of it. It's the uh, the possible states that quantum systems can be in is just so much larger than physical than classical systems that they one of them scales exponentially and the other one uh, doesn't. Uh, meaning that the quantum quantum systems scale exponentially in the uh, state space. Yeah. And but that's also why it can sometimes do these, a quantum computer can sometimes do these exponentially faster computations is because it can actually compute across all the qubits, which would be like doing a computation that is exponentially large, um, but in just a few steps. Yeah, so that, that's the argument that Deutsch usually gives for why quantum computation is... is like a reason to believe in the multiverse it's because you are performing these computations somewhere in physical reality but they're not in our universe they're happening somewhere else yeah and they're happening simultaneously in different universes that, that isn't the whole answer because also you need to be able to kind of obtain the right result from those uh, parallel computations happening in different universes yeah that that is where like quantum interference comes in and you you have to use clever methods of yeah selecting the right results it's um, almost it's almost like you're tricking the system right you set up you set up the the system so that you're doing this quantum experiment you want to do a computation and so you set up a, almost like a quantum experiment and you say okay if i get this result that's going to tell me that you know maybe i'm doing a search problem that my answer is in the top half of the search and then you can continue to do that and it gives you a piece of information that in physical reality, in classical physical reality, shouldn't be available to you. Yes. That allows you to run at a much faster, uh, a, a much faster in one step than a classical classical Turing machine would be able to. Yes, but I feel like we so we haven't really addressed yet what entanglement is. No. <laughs> I think we we, we get, went down an interesting path. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so to to kind of come back to the example of the qubits. So first of all, there's this notion of, of superposition, which is that something can be in two states at the same time. So the, the qubit can be in state one and zero at the same time. And then there's an interesting feature where the, uh, the qubits can also be uh, in these indefinite states, 
at the same time in such a way that they are what we call entangled. So you have, say, a particle like we described uh, earlier, where or a qubit, where if you measure the qubit to be in the up position or in the, in in the up state, then you know the other qubit is also in the up state, and if it's in the down state, then the other qubit is also in the down state, even though uh, separate measurements on the qubits, like or individual measurements on them, are uncertain. So an individual measurement on the qubit will, will not tell you with certainty uh, whether you're not you're going to see up or down. But you know that you're going to see if you're going to see up on one of the qubits, then you're also going to see up on the other qubit. So a joint measurement on them uh, gives you some certainty about about the results, about the uh, joint results. But the individual measurements are uncertain. And that that's what we call entanglement. Yeah. So, and my original question was, how do we relate this to locality? So maybe let's let's try to work that in with locality now. How because entanglement certainly feels non-local. Yeah. So uh, usually, in the Schrodinger picture, it seems like the when things become entangled, they can't be described separately from one another because your description of the different systems doesn't allow you to describe each system individually uh, without also losing information about what the state of the system is in. And that seems to suggest that if, if you perform these measurements on the qubits individually, uh, you're also affecting the other qubit because again, you can't really separate them from one, from one another if they're entangled. And that's and and that in turn suggests that if you, uh, if in Everett's picture, some branching event happens where the universe suddenly has two histories, then that must affect the entirety of the universe, because there is no way of really describing what's happening in the universe separately from what's happening in, to everything else in the universe. So if one system branches, then everything branches, almost. Uh, necessarily so, uh, in, but, but as it turns out, that is a feature of the Schrodinger picture. That that is not a feature of physical reality. It's a it's a feature of a way of describing physical reality, and and it's a an attribute of the Schrodinger picture that makes it less fundamental in the Heisenberg picture. And if you describe things in the Heisenberg picture, then it turns out that you have these local branching events where for example so you imagine you can you're in a lab you perform a measurement on a, a qubit well when you perform a measurement on a qubit then you branch into two versions of yourself one of whom sees one particular measurement outcome and the other one sees another measurement outcome and that is actually a completely con like isolated event in the sense that it's just you and the particle or the qubit that branched and uh, before the environment starts to obtain information about the branching event that happened, it is not uh, yet in, in any one of those universes. So it's, it's in some sense, there's this bubble that contains you and the qubit, where uh, within that bubble, you can talk about two different histories uh, resulting from the measurement that occurred. But outside of the bubble, there's not yet any information about which branch you are in. 
Um, so that kind of spreads out to the environment. So maybe you have this uh, bet with a friend where if the if you measure a qubit in the upstate, then you will buy your friend a beer. And in the other state, if you measure the other state, then he will buy you a beer. Okay, well, that means that you, know, you, you measure the particle and uh, it's an up, you, buy, you go to the bar and buy a beer. Well, that's a very different history from you and your friend going to the bar and him buying you a beer. And systems behave very differently in those two universes, but it has to kind of, so that that's one way in which the measurement can have effects on the environment. And you, 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 you know, now by knowing who is buying the beer, you know what the outcome of the measurement was. And so information about the measurement outcome has leaked into the environment. And many things in these different universes will be different as a result of the measurements. And you can kind of ex imagine a sphere of influence that's growing over time where uh, the measurement result has had some uh, effect on the environment. And this is uh, the view of the many worlds in which interactions happen locally. So it's not that the whole universe splits all at once, it's that systems kind of split or they branch. I think branching is a term that I prefer. They, they branch only because they have interacted with something that has interacted with the measurement results. So again, you, 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 uh, you holding the beer rather than your friend is a sign of what the measurement result was. And that means that uh, the, the bar that you're at has also split in and is part of this uh, history that you are in. Um, so th that is a, a, a local picture of what's going on in the many worlds. So relating it back to the Alice and Bob example, it solves the measurement problem because first you have the instrument that gets entangled with the particle. So you've got one instrument in one universe that measures up and one that measures down. Then Alice looks at it and she becomes entangled into it. And so yes. now her brain contains information about it either being an up particle or a down particle. Then Bob enters the room and she tells him what it was. And so now that he becomes entangled in, into this. Then they decide that they're gonna get the beer and because it was up, she's buying. So they go out to the bar. Now that bar becomes entangled into it and it just continues to kind of move out from there. Is that correct? Yes, that's how it works. And that's how you can kind of imagine there being a sphere of influence where the effects that the measurement can have had on its environment uh, have to grow with time. So if you're very far away from where the measurement happened, then it has to, then the information about what the measurement outcome was has to travel some distance before it can reach you and before you can become part of that history. And until then, you cannot be uh, in any one of these histories yet. Um, so I've got a weird question for you that I've always wondered about. In Beginning of Infinity, David Deutsch talks about how the an article in a newspaper could be part fiction, have a fictional history and a true history at the same time. And I never really understood what he was getting at. But I, I later read a book by Frank Tipler where he explained it a little differently. And he was saying that once universes, there is nothing different between them, then you can think of them as the same universe again. 
and it could in theory be that that history of say you know the pharaoh or something um that there was a fictional version that created exactly the same state as the real version and that those would both have some feed into our history is that correct that's always seemed so weird to me oh i'm not sure um I guess what's being said there is that certain certain fictional, well, certain works of fiction have counterparts in the multiverse that are very close to, to that fiction. So maybe there's a story about two people falling in love, or I don't know what's what's a good fiction book. Maybe uh, it can't be too outrageous. It still has Dude, to follow physical reality, right? Yes, yeah, it's, it still has to obey our laws of physics. But um, maybe somewhere in the multiverse, something like Breaking Bad happened. And like, not just a little bit like Breaking Bad, very much like Breaking Bad. Like maybe there really was a guy called Walter White who lived in Albuquerque, who was dealing drugs as a high school teacher and who almost won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And, and that will be true somewhere in the multiverse. Yeah. But here, in our part of the multiverse, it's a fictional story because it's this this it's idea a television is, show. is related to that, but it takes it just a little bit further. Where it says, "Okay, let's see, let's use King Arthur as an example." We have these stories of King Arthur, and there's this debate over whether King Arthur actually existed or not. So we can imagine one set of universes where King Arthur actually existed, and he was the inspiration for the stories that we tell today. But everything else about him has been lost. There's no history of him other than these stories. Then you have another universe where you have the exact same stories happen to come into being, but there was never a King Arthur. He was a totally fictional character. Other than other, both these universes in their current state today are identical. They both produced the exact same stories about King Arthur. So you have this history, one's fictional and one's not. And both would be have fed into the universe that we see today and so it would be there would be an open question the question did king arthur exist may not even be a valid question in that universe that was really what frank tipler was uh getting at um that you could actually it may be that one's far fed far more into it into the other perhaps the one where king arthur did exist is a much more realistic uh, more probable circumstance so you end up with that one feeding into the present much stronger than the fictional version but he was suggesting that many worlds suggested that you would actually have both as part of your history yeah that seems i mean that's true in principle but not unlikely in, in practice because the the ways in which those universes differ from one another is not just about whether King Arthur really existed in those universes. So, uh, for example, there, if King, Ar King Arthur really existed, then there will be certain historical artifacts that uh, are that will be here today, and, and certain people's lives will have been different in sure. relevant ways. And it is true that if all of that information was lost, then perhaps we could remerge with that universe in which King Arthur was alive. The way you're describing this actually is exactly what Tipler was getting at, that they would have right. to be identical. It would have to be that 
there's no other differences between these universes except there are no differences between these universes. They both have exactly the same stories that for whatever reason they happen to get into the exact same state, but one King Arthur was real, one he wasn't. And that's our universe today. We don't know if King Arthur is real or not today. Um, there's people who say he was, people that say he wasn't, they're trying to look at the quote evidence to determine um, if he's real or not. Uh, but the, the idea would be that in theory, because we don't have any really, anything that really shows for certain that he was, did or didn't exist, that it could be that both those histories are valid histories of our universe today. I don't know how realistic that is. This is obviously they're trying to, trying to give a, a kind of out there example of how you could have a, a history that's both fictional and isn't. And it would, it would require some really very special things to happen where all the information got completely deleted. So there was no other differences. But yes, and also the stories are completely the same. So the he's imagining- completely the same, correct. Yes. So that those things are very unlikely, because even if there's some historical evidence that we have yet to uncover that could point to there having been a King Arthur, right? That were they made, that that is a distinction between the universe where King Arthur is was a real historical figure and the one in which he, he wasn't. That's right. And there's just stories about him. That's right. So you, even even if this idea were true, it seems like it would only it would be some little infinitesimal part of the multiverse for whichever, for one of them. And the other one would be yes. a much stronger feed in, into the history. Yes, but the principle is true. The principle that universes rejoin or can rejoin because they lose some information is true. So for example, if you have a particle that goes along two paths because it's, it's hit a beam splitter and then you make it remerge again, uh, there's then the particle at the end of the experiment, which is in a definite, like sharp state, there's no, there's not really an answer to the question, which trajectory did it take? Cause it took both at, right. at the same time. And then it remerged. Right. So the information about which trajectory it took are, is completely lost to everyone. It's we, all, all that we know is that it took, well, if, if we know enough, then we know that it took both at the same time. And, but there's no way of saying, Oh, well, those instances of the particle took the one path and the others took the other path because they, those instances that have taken different paths have become indistinguishable from one another uh, again up on remerging. That, that makes sense. So they're taking that idea to an extreme when they suggest something like this to show how yes. far in theory it could happen. But like in practice, it doesn't seem like even slightly probable. Yes. All right. Makes sense. Could you maybe just briefly, if possible, describe what decoherence is? Your, your paper talks about a couple things that I don't know, I have kind of a vague notion of. Decoherence, which is, you know, why is it, it is somehow related to why is it that we can't see both universes at the same time? And then you also talk about quasi-classical systems. And is that related to the same question yes or? so uh, the okay if you're if you're a many worlds sir and you think that everything is described by quantum theory then a very natural question to ask is well why why do things even seem classical in that case like i think i live in a classical universe where things have definite values and chairs and tables and other things are not in superpositions as far as i can tell 
and and they behave roughly as as though Newton's equations are true. So why is that? Why why is it the case that this quantum world somehow behaves classically at all? And it turns out that when systems, when quantum systems uh, evolve generically, then due to the interactions between all of the quantum systems, they start to behave somewhat classically. So um, if, if you have some environment that's constantly interacting with, I, I'm just gonna take a kind of random object, you know, what, imagine you have a chair, you have a quantum chair and the quantum chair is in the superposition of, of being in all kinds of different locations. Well, okay, that chair uh, isn't isolated. It's, it's in a room and it's interacting with the light in that room. It's in, interacting with like several trillions of photons that are hitting it at every point in time. And, uh, or every couple of seconds, I think I should say. And um, so that, that chair is providing information to the photons about where, what position it's at. The, the photons are getting entangled with the chair and it's not just the photons, it's everything else in the room that's getting entangled with it. So the photons are uh, hitting off the chair, they're then uh, bouncing off the room and, and or the, the door or the door or the, the walls in the room. And then the photon hits your eye and you see where the chair is. And in, the, in that process, like the, the photons, the chair, the, the wall and you, and you have all become entangled with one another. And that's happening very, very often. So it seems like everything has a definite position uh, because everything is constantly interacting with almost everything else, at least within the near vicinity. So everything in the room is uh, interacting with everything else in the room. And the, the result of that is that things behave roughly classically. So that, that kind of suppresses the typical quantum effect. So the chair can't interfere with the other versions of itself because of all these different interactions that are occurring. And that's, that's roughly why the chair is, is like a classical system. It's not because it has only a single history. It's that the different histories of the chair can't interfere with one another because of all this noise, because of all the different interactions that the chair is partaking in. And, and, that's, and that's what decoherence is? Yes, so the coherence is what occurs because of all these different interactions with the environment. So you could say like the chair is, is some physical system, it's interacting with an environment in this case, say the air molecules in the room, the photons that are hitting it, um, and basically anything that interacts with the chair at all. And these are decohering the chair. So the chair roughly has a single position and it, it will, or rather every, uh, the chair in the multiverse, the chair has multiple positions, but these positions, but these different instances of the chair will never interfere with one another because of uh, the interactions that are taking place with all the other systems. And and it, what is a quasi-classical system then? Um, Does that just mean so, it, it, effectively we can treat it as if it's classical or is quasi-classical something that's actually more in between well so the, the reason why we use the term quasi-classical is because the, the chair is never really a, a, a classical system i see like for example the if you were to say that the chair is a classical system it would only have one history 
and, and many things about the chair would be false. Uh, the, many attributes that the chair has in reality, it could not have if it was a classical system. Like the very fact that it is, is stable is, is an attribute of it being a quantum system because only quantum theory allows us to explain why atoms are stable. And the, so these attributes of the chair are, are attributes that it couldn't have if it, was, if it was a classical system. And yet it behaves roughly as if uh, it's a classical system in the sense that chairs appear to only have a single definite position somewhere in space and they don't interfere with other instances of itself. They're always like, unless we interact with them, they're uh, wherever we leave them. Interesting. So it's, yeah, it's a way of saying, well, things seem to behave as, as if they, as we thought they would before discovering quantum theory. And we have to explain the behavior of, of particles, of chairs, of, of everyday objects as a result of quantum theory. But those things never really are classical systems. Okay, so that's what a quasi-classical system is. Is it just it's the explanation for why things seem classical to us, but they never really are classical. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So my favorite example of this is that, say, refrigerator magnets are they they can't be classical systems. This is nice proof by Bohr, where he showed that magnets, as as in uh, materials with magnetic properties, ferromagnets, are uh, cannot exist according to classical physics. In classical physics, any material that has some magnetization uh, can only have that magnetization because it's in a magnetic field, but it can't have any intrinsic magnetization. And uh, we actually, like quantum theory is part of the explanation for why things like magnets, refrigerator magnets, ferromagnets can exist. And in that sense, uh, those magnets are, are not classical objects. They're, they're quantum objects, just like everything else in the world is a quantum object. But they behave roughly according to our classical intuitions. So we never see these magnets interfere with other instances of the magnet right. in daily life. Right. Interesting. I think you've given us all a lot to think about. Sam, <laughs> this is a this is a very interesting paper. I, I hope that this overview will kind of help people either gain interest in it or understand it a little bit better. Um, but uh, and we will continue to do some YouTube videos. I'll put those up that will also help explain the mathematical side of it. So, uh, Sam, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate uh, you doing that. I, I think this has uh, just been fascinating. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. It was great fun chatting with you. Yes. Thank you. And Tracy, thank you for joining us also. Oh, thank you both. That was great. Glad you liked it. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much for having me again and talk to you soon. Yes. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. 
Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.